The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my honor to welcome my guest, Dr. Laura Kahn. Dr. Kahn is a physician, and for 18 years, she was a research scholar with the Program on Science and Global Security at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University. Her education and training span nursing, medicine, public health, and public policy. She is also the co-founder of the One Health Initiative, which is what we'll be speaking about today. In 2006, however, she published Confronting Zoonoses, Linking Human and Veterinary Medicine in the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention CDC Journal of Emerging Infectious Diseases. That publication helped launch the One Health Initiative, which seeks to improve the health of all species by increasing communication and collaboration between human, animal, and environmental health specialists. She is the author of Who's in Charge? Leadership During Epidemics, Bioterror Attacks, and Other Public Health Crises. Originally published in 2009, there's a new edition published in 2020 with a new preface discussing leadership during the COVID-19 epidemic. She is also the author of One Health and the Politics of Antimicrobial Resistance, which was published in 2016 by Johns Hopkins University Press. It's described as an essential primer for anyone who chooses to grapple with this crucial public health issue. Dr. Kahn is a native of California. She holds a BS degree in nursing from UCLA, an MD from Mount Sinai School of Medicine, a master's degree in public health from Columbia University, and a master's degree in public policy from Princeton University. Welcome, Dr. Kahn. Thank you so much, Melinda. It's truly a pleasure to be with you. Well, this is such a critical issue, and I can't think of a more important topic to be addressing right now as we grapple with both climate change and COVID-19, although the experts tell me this will not be our last pandemic. So getting on top of the root causes of our pandemics and other illnesses, I think, is critical. We should probably start, though, with a general understanding of what is the One Health concept. Very simply, One Health is the concept that human, animal, plant, environmental, and ecosystem health are linked. And that might seem obvious to many, but it's generally not how we approach things. It's a concept that has been intuitively understood by many indigenous peoples around the world, and we have much to learn from them to become better stewards of our planet. Mm, Absolutely. And I thought it was interesting when I was preparing for this interview, I looked through some of the curriculum that you had developed under the title of When Cows Go Crazy, the Inextricable Mm -hmm. Link Between Human and Animal Health. And in that summary of topic, you write that in the 19th century, there was considerable communication and collaboration between physicians and veterinarians. But in the 20th century, those collaborative efforts waned, and the two professions have moved apart. Can you tell me 
how and why that happened? In the 19th century, you had Sir William Osler, who's considered the father of modern medicine. He went to Germany, which at the time was the leader in medicine, and studied under Berthau, famous physician, Rudolf Berthau, who was the father of pathology. And his father was a butcher, and he started to make thin slices of meat and look at it under the microscope, and he discovered parasites. Taught Dr. Osler these techniques. Dr. Osler went back to Canada. He was originally Canadian. And he teamed up with the veterinary school, veterinarian, to establish pathology. So there was a lot of overlap. And, of course, he brought those techniques to the United States, pathological investigation of disease. As the 20th century occurred and scientific knowledge exploded, medicine and veterinary medicine went their separate ways. The uh, students of medicine and veterinary medicine used to share classes together, and, and that split. And the divorce became even greater once schools of veterinary medicine became established in state universities, completely separate campuses from the medical school. So... Uh, they just went their separate ways, and it's really quite a shame because so many disease processes are shared between humans and the other animals, and sometimes discoveries are made in veterinary medicine decades before the <laughs> equivalent discovery is made in medicine. And just to give you an example, the discovery of coronaviruses in animals, the viruses that cause disease in animals was made about 30 years before the discovery in humans. Right. And you also speak about how animals give us clues about what is about to come to happen to us. So, for example, the animals being these sentinel species, with mm -hmm. regard to environmental toxins, we have lots mm -hmm. of examples with that. But I don't know how much we are connecting those dots because as you say, we tend to have these silos. We have silos of medicine, veterinary medicine. I would add silos of agriculture and then another silo oh, of public health and nutrition. We've been siloed into the College of Home Economics. Yes, yes. No, everybody's become siloed. You know, there's a tendency to specialize and subspecialize. Look, in medicine, most physicians now focus on just one organ system. So you go to your endocrinologist, you go to your cardiologist, you go to your gastroenterologist, and you have a zillion different doctors for every different organ system. Right. In veterinary medicine, most are still generalists, although there is a push to subspecialize. And, of course, agriculture and nutrition, if you look at the government infrastructures, they're in the U.S. Department of Agriculture, separated from human health, and the spending disparities are huge, even though one could argue that our health is dependent on what we eat. The food we eat, the air we breathe, the water we drink, that determines much of our health. And if the food is contaminated, if our environment's contaminated, that's going to make us sick. But yet, agriculture, the environment, they're not talking to medicine. Medicine's not talking to veterans. Nobody's talking to each other. It's a serious problem, and that was part of the impetus of establishing the One Health concept, the One Health initiative. Well, I have an excellent paper that was published in July of 2021, developing a One Health approach by using a multidimensional matrix. 
And this is an easy to digest paper, but you spell out brilliantly what the dimensions are in terms of all of these interacting factors. So you look at environments, you look at ecosystems, you look at humans, animals, and plants, the time factor, the complexity factors, microbial, my gosh, the Mm -hmm. whole microbial world has been exploding, at least in the nutrition world. And you also importantly, I think, look at the political, social, and economic factors. And I think you and I have both been interested in fecal material. I'm very concerned about that from these horrific animal-confined feeding operations, CAFOs, confined animal feeding operations, where you have these large concentrations of animals, an enormous amount of fecal material that is more often more than the land can bear. So the farmer who has these livestock operations, they're essentially what they own at the end of the day is manure, and they have to sell that. So they sell that to neighboring farms that are growing the feed that feed the animals in these complexes. But when there is a climatic incident, say a huge storm where Mm -hmm. these manure pits leak, you've got an overabundance of microbes from the manure that get into air and water and soil and us. So let's talk about your concerns about fecal material and how they impact global health. Yes. Well, as you spelled out, it's huge, and it's something that nobody wants to talk about. We have sanitation systems that are designed to process human waste, but nothing's designed to process animal waste. And for most of human history and agriculture, the animal waste was used as fertilizer. It helped to replenish the nutrients that were lost in the soil when you're growing crops, provided organic material. But the farmers would only have so many animals. They didn't have tens of thousands of animals packed into these pathos. And when you have that much waste, the land can't handle it all. And so what it does is it contaminates the soil, it contaminates the waters, it contaminates the atmosphere through very potent greenhouse gases, methane and nitrous oxide, which are the most potent greenhouse gases contributing to the warming of the planet. So these are very, very serious issues. And in many countries, this animal waste will contaminate food, causing foodborne illness, and water causing waterborne illness. I mean, that's what happens when you travel to countries with poor sanitation, not only human sanitation, but animal, no animal sanitation. So your risk of getting tourista increases dramatically. That's not to say we can't get foodborne illnesses here, and certainly waterborne illnesses. We've had examples of that, cryptosporidium in Milwaukee in 1993. That came from cattle farm upstream from the river. So these things happen, but it's something that we as a society need to address. There was this very important paper published by David Barrandis and his colleagues, estimating the global amount of fecal waste produced by all the humans and all the terrestrial mammals. And they estimate that it's about 4 trillion kilograms a year. And that's been increasing since 2014 when they did the studies. 
And just to give you an idea of what that looks like, it would fill about 1.6 million Olympic-sized swimming pools with manure each year. Or to put it another way, it would cover the complete surface area of Los Angeles and New York in about six feet of fecal matter every year, and it's increasing. So these are huge, huge amounts that we are putting in our environment, impacting our ecosystem, changing the the microbial biome of the planet. You want to talk about antimicrobial resistance. I mean, that's another whole issue, and that is tied in also with this massive amount of fecal waste that is mixing with the soil microbes and increasing the expression of antimicrobial resistance genes. If you want to really tackle antimicrobial resistance, you have to factor in these huge environmental components, and nobody's really doing that. Right. Well, I think it's important. You write also, you know, in the discussion about the manure from concentrated animal feeding operations, you say that environmental regulations such as the Clean Water Act are meant to reduce environmental contamination, but the assumption that government agencies collect reliable manure contamination data on CAFOs should not be made. And I think that we tend to think that there are agencies protecting us. And those agencies are not protecting us. So what do we do now? That's a great question. There is, I think the last report, the GAO report was from 2008, looking at these cases, saying that they're producing more fecal waste than some mid-sized cities. Yes, what do we do? I mean, look, the government should be accountable to its citizenry, and we should hold our elected officials accountable for these types of issues that impact our health. But unfortunately, our politics right now is so dysfunctional, it's hard to make any positive moves on virtually anything. Yeah. Uh, and that's really a terrible situation to be in. It is. Let me take one break, Dr. Khan, because we're halfway through. I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined today by Dr. Laura Khan. She is a physician. She is the co-founder of the One Health Initiative, and that is what we are talking about today. I want to get back to the One Health paper because there was something else that you wrote that I thought was extremely important, and it touches on the Green Revolution. And that's something that is not debated enough, I know, in land-grant colleges, but the Green Revolution reduced poverty. It averted hunger for millions of people in developing countries. That's great. But it came with costs, including a reliance on pesticides and synthetic fertilizers. And those toxins really feed into this one health problem where you have multiple inroads where you've got toxins entering our water, our soil, our food system, and contributing to illness. That's correct. The um, Green Revolution relied on high nitrogen fertilizers. And at the time that it was implemented in the 1960s, manure was the primary source of fertilization for agriculture. And that has since changed. It's now synthetic fertilizers and now the preferred 
form of nutrient replenishment, particularly nitrogen, which also is a major contributor of nitrous oxide. High nitrogen synthetic fertilizers contribute the most potent greenhouse gas, nitrous oxide, into the atmosphere. That's a huge, huge problem that needs to be addressed. So, yes, the Green Revolution averted starvation for millions, and that was very important. But the environmental cost can't be ignored any longer, as well as the use of pesticides. Look, we've got diminishing biodiversity. I've heard the term insect apocalypse being thrown about. That was actually a major front-page article in the New York Times. Insects are the linchpin of most ecosystems. A lot of animals rely on them for food. And when the insects go, we all go with them. Birds rely on them. Bats rely on them for food. They are extremely important. I mean, our usual approach to insects is to kill them because many of them are agricultural pests or some transmit disease. And look, mosquitoes are the deadliest creature on the planet. Nobody likes mosquitoes, but they do serve as food for a lot of, a lot of animals. So our kill them all approach is again devastating our bird population. Much of our biological diversity is so important for ecosystem health. You know, I was curious. So all of these factors, of course, come together and create a really potent and devastating storm when we talk about our own sustainability on this planet. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on how we can break open the silos, have more conversations, put priority on public health over economics. I'm always troubled by individuals who don't see that we can't have a strong economy if we first don't have a clean environment and public health. What are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, I want to thank you for having this conversation because we have to get the word out. And until we get the word out, until the media provides the coverage, the attention that these issues deserve, we're not going to make much headway. People have to know what's at stake, and they have to be fed the facts, not misinformation. You have to get the political will to make these changes. And as we're seeing in so many issues, generating political will, even if it means for our own survival, is not easy because there's always competing corporate interests against it. You know, they don't want their bottom line affected, even though it's going to jeopardize the future of humanity, the future of agriculture. I mean, look, agriculture is the foundation of civilization. If that collapses, civilization collapses. It's as simple as that. Agriculture depends upon a relatively stable, mild climate. For the past 10,000 years, during the era of the Holocene in which we now live, the climate has been on this baseline called the Holocene Baseline. Whenever there was a small deviation from the Holocene baseline, such as during the mini ice age, during the Middle Age, the 1300s, so around 1700 or so, when it deviated below that Holocene baseline, you had devastating weather, crop failure, famine, and war. It was a horrible time. That was just a tiny blip below the Holocene baseline, and now we are about one degree above the Holocene baseline, and 
we are starting to see the impact of that around the world, including in agriculture. So these are warning signs, and we either heed them and do something about it, or we suffer the consequences and leave future generations in much worse shape. And and that really is inexcusable. We are the stewards. We are responsible for bequeathing this planet in better shape to our descendants. Mm. We owe it to them. We can't leave them this mess. Well, in your One Health initiative, of which you are a co-founder, your other co-founder is a veterinarian. And I wonder, is One Health being taught in both medical schools and colleges of veterinary medicine? It's been largely embraced by the veterinarians. They understand it because when they take care of their patients, the animals, they look at their animals in the environmental context in which they live. In medical school, we've become so reductionistic, focusing on organ systems and cellular level of disease, while that's important. They miss the big picture. So One Health has not been embraced in medicine, particularly here in the United States. Now, there are other countries that are recognizing the importance of One Health, and I'm going to be flying out to Portugal at the end of the month to talk to them because they're planning on turning their whole healthcare, medical, and public health educational institution to One Health. Wow. So there is interest in other countries, but I'm not seeing that here in the United States, not by medicine nor by public health to any large measure. It's Mm. been largely embraced by the veterinarians. And I imagine it's hard to make inroads in colleges of agriculture as well, in part because of funding sources. When state and federal departments of agriculture are robbed of tax dollars, those colleges have to look towards industry for these kinds of partnerships in funding. And so it's kind of hard to bite the hand that feeds you. That's absolutely true. Agriculture is dependent on corporate support. Health is dependent on the medical industrial complex. And they are not generally not interested in these issues. And it's very unfortunate. And I'm not sure where the funding is going to come from. Governments and foundations say that they're interested in interdisciplinary work. But when the rubber hits the road, they prefer to stay in their silos. They just don't know what to do with One Health. In academia, in most cases, they don't know what to do with One Health. Academia is very siloed as well. So it's a concept that might be ahead of its time, but I'm not sure how much time we've got. So, Yeah, I think it is, it is extremely timely, in my opinion, just because of the work that I've done, just focused on antibiotic-resistant infections alone. Without all of these other confounding factors, I think that is critical. We have certainly mm-hmm. been able to take for granted, for example, the fact that If we're going to have a procedure, a medical procedure, we can take an antibiotic. If we have a a urinary tract infection or a respiratory tract infection, we can take an antibiotic and we can depend on it. Not so much anymore. And I think that, and please give me your thoughts on this, I think that COVID-19 has woken many of us up, but smarter people than me tell me 
beware, this is not the first pandemic, and we should be looking at the interface between humans and other animal species for the source of our next pandemic. Yeah, well, look, just as agriculture is the foundation of civilization, antimicrobials are the foundation of modern medicine. Without safe and effective antimicrobials, many of the treatments that we take for granted, whether it's elective surgeries, cancer chemotherapies, immunosuppressive therapies for autoimmune diseases, these things become too risky to do because the chance for infection becomes too high. So yes, and antimicrobial resistance is very much a One Health issue. As I had mentioned earlier, the environmental component is enormous because in terms of the source of the antibiotics, many of the antibiotics were derived from soil microbes. And for a long time, scientists thought that the soil microbes used these antibiotics as a form of chemical warfare against each other, but in actuality, they would use minute amounts as a form of communication with each other. So you couldn't culture a lot of these microbes in the laboratory, so scientists came up with this very clever strategy to, called metagenomics, where they extracted the genetic material directly from the soil and to look and see what was there. They didn't know necessarily from which microbe the genetic material came from, but nevertheless, they found antimicrobial resistance genes everywhere. They found them in the Arctic. They found them in the Antarctic. They found them in places that never saw any anthropogenic exposure. So what that meant was that antimicrobial resistance genes are ancient. They're everywhere. And by our blasting the environment with use in medicine, agriculture, including plants, it's used like water and plant crop agriculture, by doing that, the soil microbes are very nicely sharing resistance genes with each other to protect each other from what we're doing, Mm -hmm. including all the manure that we're producing. So they're sharing these resistance genes much more cooperatively and effectively then we can develop new antimicrobials. So in a way, it's unsustainable what's going on. I view it like our dependence on fossil fuels, cheap and easy, but not sustainable in the long term. We need to work with nature, not against it. And right now we're working against nature, both in terms of our burning of fossil fuels and our whole agricultural industry in in medicine, in our dependence on these antibiotics that are altering not only the soils, but our gut microbes, our microbiome, they have huge deleterious effect on the normal microbiomes of our bodies when we take these drugs. So while they have saved many lives, they also come with cost. Right. Well, Dr. Khan, unfortunately, we are out of time, but I am going to make sure that our listeners have a link to your excellent One Health article. I will provide a link to the course that you teach, and it is free through Coursera. It's titled Bats, Ducks, and Pandemics, an Intro to One Health. There are also two websites, onehealthinitiative.com and the onehealthcommission.com, and I will provide links to both of those sources I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Laura Kahn. She is a physician, 
18 years research scholar with the Program on Science and Global Security at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University and co-founder of the One Health Initiative. Thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us today. Melinda, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.